Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Today I wanted to talk a little bit about geology and the connection to pots and rocks and things that we use. So I'm going to divide the talk into three parts. We're going to talk about the history of the earth, a little bit just kind of in general terms, um, the origin of the materials that we use for pottery, how they, how they originate in, by geological processes. And then lastly, if we have enough time, um, I want to talk a little bit about the local geology here, what happened here geologically in the past, because this is a really fascinating area for geology. A lot happened here um, in the past. This is much, much, to me, much more interesting than living in Ohio or western, or western Illinois. Even. Or Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> So the earth, we're talking about the Earth first, and because the Earth is about 5 billion years old, and I'm going to try to condense it to about 15 minutes, so I'm going to have to leave a few things out. <laughs> so just starting at the beginning, right now the best estimate is the Earth formed about 4.6 billion years ago. You know, this is one of the, one of the hard things about being a human being, is because we live in such a, a, a tiny little slice of the universe in terms of time, in, you know, extensive time, in terms of distances, in terms of light waves and, and things, they're, they're so much smaller than we are and bigger than we are that it's really hard to even imagine. But they figure the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old and that it originated from dust and other fragments of other planets and stars and things that were circulating around, attracted by the sun. And they basically were swirling around the sun and after a while gravity pulled them together and they collected and formed this, this early ball of stuff. And about four and a half billion years ago, after this, this, all this, this celestial stuff had collected, it started, it started to separate into layers. He the heavier materials, like asteroids that were mostly metal, would start to sink toward the center because this chunk of, of debris had enough gravity of its own now that it could pull on things. So the heavier materials, like the meteorite fragments that were, that were mostly iron, would be pulled more toward the center. So the surface, the, the Earth started to segregate into sort of three different layers or three different zones. And one was the surface crust on the outside, which was mostly the lightest weight minerals and the lightest weight materials. And then there's another layer underneath it called the mantle, which is kind of intermediate weight stuff. And then there was the core. And, the, and, and so what the core ended up being is mostly iron and nickel is from, from the meteorites. And it's, 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 it's basically where most of, the, most of the weight of the Earth, frankly, is in the core. Um, the first life, the best estimates now from, what, from studying fossils is that the first life they figure probably appeared on Earth, this would be single cell life, about 3.8 to 3.4 billion years ago. So not that long, this has been a, a fairly recent change. They used to, we'll talk about it later, but they used to believe that life only began about 500 million years ago. But they're finding evidence now with new analytical techniques that they think life started a lot sooner than they originally thought. And that it, in fact, started not that long after the Earth was formed. Originally, the surface of the Earth, after all these things impacted the Earth, the, Earth, the surface of the Earth was basically molten. And then it cooled down, and during that molten stage, the Earth was settling and, and settling and, and segregating into these different these different shells of these different regions. But not long after it cooled down, they're finding evidence of, of first life. Geologists, when they talk about 
when they talk about the age of the earth, they tend to divide it. They, have, they divide it into time periods. And the time periods are based, really, they were originally based on, on what was happening in the rocks. If they, if they, before they even understood a lot of what was going on, if they'd see a change in the rocks, like something happened, like maybe a new life form appeared or some other life form, some fossil disappeared, they, sort of, they used that as a demarcation or a, 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 a change between different periods. So this, excuse me, I'm not going to go into all the details. But the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of uh, divisions of geologic time are these. The Cenozoic, which we're still living in. The Cenozoic means recent life. This is where they were, they were basing it on where they saw evidence of life in the rock. So the Cenozoic era started about 66 million years ago. And then before that, the Mesozoic, which means middle life, started about 252 million years ago, give or take a few million years. And the Paleozoic, which means ancient, started about 542 million years ago. And then, then according to the original classification, one of, these all have subdivisions underneath these main categories, and then subdivisions under the subdivisions, which we don't have to go into here. But the earliest subdivision of, the, of this Paleozoic is called the Cambrian period. And so everything <laughs> earlier than that was called the Precambrian. There are a lot more subdivisions down here. But this started four and a half billion years ago, Basically, that's what I mentioned, the same time as the Earth was starting to segregate into these recognizable layers across the mantle and core. And so there are a lot of different, and a lot of these early terms, for instance, I just mentioned the Cambrian, that was named after a tribe of, of in Wales, the Cambria, or the Cambrians, I forget what the original, but so a lot of the early work that was done in Europe and Britain was named after the Ordovician. There's another period in here called the Ordovician period. That was named after another Welsh tribe, the Ordovicis. And so a lot of the names were, were the, of, the, of the smaller divisions came from either the location or something that was happening in that area when they first started examining the rock. So we'll just use this as a framework that we can refer back to. Okay? MYA. Um, pardon? MYA. Million years ago. Oh, million years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but you said that the, the, the uh, Cambrian is for. Their pre-Cambrian basically started. Uh, they, they, they can date it now back to with, with rock because there are still. Believe it, the thing that's amazing is there are still rocks around. They're not very, they're not very common, but there's still rocks around from them that you can recognize as being that old. They have dating techniques now where they can date the rock. And uh, in Greenland is one in particular where there's some incredible Greenland and Australia, parts of Canada. There's some incredibly ancient rocks that go all the way back to basically when they think the Earth formed. I mean, incredibly ancient ones that they've been able to, they've been able to identify. But the, the, the big thing to, to talk about in terms of, you know, getting, bringing it more up to date is, yeah, so basically the Earth is this huge ball of rock and iron and iron in the center. But the big thing is it's not static. There's a lot of, there are a lot of processes and motion and things and activities going on there. So we think about Amish living on a big ball of rock, but it's not at all dead. There's a lot of a huge amount of activity going on on the surface and underneath the surface. The, the core of the Earth actually consists of two parts, a solid inner core and a molten outer core, basically molten iron and nickel. And a currents, movements, or movement of the liquid in that outer core is what generates the magnetic field of the Earth. That's what actually generates the magnetic, the, the, our, our magnetic field is this movement of the, of the liquid, the molten iron in the outer core. And the next layer above that, in the mantle, there's such tremendous pressure and heat at these depths in the earth that the rocks and the material down there is actually slowly flowing. You can think of it as sort of almost like toothpaste consistency. I mean, we think of the rocks as being hard and brittle. 
But when you put them under enough pressure and under enough heat, they actually become soft and plastic. Kind of like, you've all heard the term, you know, we, t- we call it pyroplastic, that when you fire clay, it gets slightly soft and moves. Well, that's what's happening only with the addition of pressure. That's what's happening to the rocks all the time deep in the earth, in the mantle. So the rocks in this intermediate zone in the earth, which is a big, wide zone, are actually moving, and, and we'll talk about this later, but they actually are moving around in, in currents. They're flowing, actually, constantly underneath. So, um, and then on, in the crust itself, there's a, there's a huge amount going on. And this, this, and the, but by the way, if you think about scale, if the earth is about the size of an apple, the crust is like the skin of the apple. And we're only living on the barest surface. The, earth, the crust is roughly 30 to 35 miles thick. Okay? Well, the Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter. So we're only living in like the out, the, the whole crust, the whole part that we think of as, you know, where all our minds go and everything else, is only 35 miles deep, and we're only living on the surface of that. So it's tiny relative to the, to the mass of the rest of the Earth. But there's a lot of activity in the crust, and this, this, the driving force that they've realized now for all the geological processes that we think about, and you've probably heard of this, is continental drift, or they call it plate tectonics. They realized in the 1960s that the whole surface of the Earth, the crust, if you look at it, is divided up into like pieces, like a jigsaw puzzle. And they call these, these are called plates. And they're probably on the order of 20, 20 some odd plates, pieces of the Earth's uh, and these plates are moving. They're shifting around. This is, and floating on top of each one of these pieces of Earth is a continent. So the, the continent isn't itself the whole plate. There'll be, a, there'll be a portion of the Earth, like a piece of the puzzle, and there might be on top of that a piece of, of what we would call a continent. And these pieces are actually shifting around over the surface of the Earth. We'll talk about how and why. But they're moving around. And so all the things that we think about in terms of when we think about geological activity, volcanoes, earthquakes, those are all caused by the shifting around of these plates on the surface of the Earth. So it's not just the continents. The old term is continental drift, because they can see these continents. They have evidence of the continents moving. But it's not just the continents. It's the whole plate that's supporting the continent. So it's like a boat, and the continent is a passenger on the boat. And these things are shifting around constantly over the surface of the Earth. And what's moving them is the currents in the mantle underneath. There are convection currents. There are natural currents. Hot material is right. Rock is rising underneath, and cold material is sinking back toward the center of the earth. And as, it, as these these huge currents in the underlying rock move, they drag the plates with them. So in some cases, you have plates that are moving apart. As a, if a current wells up toward the surface of the earth and spreads as it reaches the surface, then it tends to push the plates apart. In other cases, where the current is dropping down in, it tends to drag the plates together. So the plates are constantly jostling around. Some of them are moving apart, some are separated. For example, right now, the Atlantic Ocean is getting wider. The, Europe, the, the, the plate that Europe and Africa, the plates that Europe and Africa are on, and America are on a different plate, they're actually spreading. So the Atlantic Ocean is widening by about an inch and a half every year. They say at about the rate your fingernails grow. Uh, so, and whereas the Pacific Ocean is closing in millions of years or whatever, there may not be a Pacific Ocean at all. We're going to we'll talk about this when we talk about the local history. But o- whole oceans have come and gone over the history of the Earth, and continents have collided and combined and split in new ways and created new continents. And this has happened a lot of times over the course of the history of the Earth. But all the things that we think about when you hear about, about earthquakes and volcanoes, that's all happened because of these continents colliding or, pull, or pulling apart. 
So there's a, it happens, but there's a lot happening on the surface of the Earth. We tend to think about it in terms of these sort of instantaneous things like earthquakes and volcanoes. But it's all the time there's this motion going on. These things are happening. And only when it finally reaches a critical point do you have like an earthquake or you have a volcanic eruption. And all, in addition to that, in addition to the, the, well, the other point is that, and along with this, is the Earth is, and I mentioned this in a little blurb for the advertisement, the Earth is constantly recycling its own materials so that you have some of the portions of the surface of the crust that are pulled back down into the Earth and remelted and then come back up again to the surface of the Earth. So that it's, remel it's, it's remelting its own materials inside the Earth. And also you have, you have the weathering and erosion. So you have, when you have things like mountains and land masses, they're being worn down by wind and water and ice and erosion of other materials. And that stuff ends up in the sea. And then that stuff gets pulled down into the center of the Earth and remelted and reworked and may come up as a volcano somewhere else. So the, whole, the Earth is constantly, very slowly, but it's constantly recycling everything. So, it's, it, so from that point of view, it's really unusual that we can find evidence of any of these really old continents, old rocks at all, because most of it, in fact, is gone. Most of it has been recycled maybe multiple times. So it's actually very surprising when we can find an area of the world that has remained intact where basically nothing has touched it since it was originally formed. So in terms of geological processes, in terms of what's going on, well, I mentioned there's this what's called plate tectonics. That's the name for where, the, where you have the, the plates colliding and spreading. And then, there's, and, this is, and then you have mountain, mountain building. People used to wonder, when I, was, when I first started studying geology, I have two degrees in geology. That was originally what I went to school for. When they were originally studying about mountains, they understood the mountains and the structures, but they didn't know where did the force come to make the mountains, you know, what actually made the, the land pile up and form mountains. And they, then they realized it was the collision of the plates. That's what finally did it. For instance, the, 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 uh, the mountains the, the, in, in India, the, the, the Himalayas, India used to be a separate continent, and it slammed into Asia and created the Himalayas. The, the, the Andes Mountains running down the whole western side of South America are there because the Pacific Plate, the bottom of the ocean, is slamming into the west coast of South America. So if you notice, you don't form mountains, or you very rarely form mountains, in the middle of a continent. They're all formed on the edges of continents where one continent is plowing into another one and literally crumping and crumpling and bending and piling up the rocks. Very slowly... You can't stand there and watch the mountains kind of get pushed up. But, but it's happening over, you know, relentlessly over millions of years. And so they, and I, because I remember that was kind of a big discovery when, and when I was early on in geology. Was they, un they understood all about the structure of mountains and the rocks and everything, but they just didn't know, you know, what caused them to actually form. And plate tectonics, the movement that solved, that was the answer. It solved a lot of these things that they understood, except for the fact was why did it happen? And all of a sudden, understanding about the fact that you have these movements of these huge pieces of the puzzle on the surface of the Earth, it answered all the questions. It said, that's the answer. That's why it happens. So you have, so in terms of major processes, you have volcanism, you have volcanoes, basically, where you have molten material coming up to the surface of the Earth and, and erupting. Or in some cases, it doesn't actually make it all up to the surface of the Earth. It may rise up into the crust and then freeze and solidify there and stay there. And maybe it's exposed millions of years later by erosion, but it doesn't actually erupt on the surface. There's a second process called metamorphism, and that's where previously existing rocks are changed into something new. 
This usually happens at great depth in the earth. If a rock gets, gets pushed way down in the crust, miles down in the crust, there's tremendous heat and pressure down there. That's enough to actually chemically and physically change the structure of the rock into something different, and we'll talk about that. So that's part of the recycling process. And then there's sedimentation, which is where, when rocks are on the surface of the earth, where rocks are eroded and weathered and changed by, by ice and wind and water and, and abrasion by other rocks, the, the debris, the fine particles, the sand and the dust, basically is carried by water or wind and settles somewhere and builds up as a deposit. And then actually eventually, turn, if you build up enough of it, the weight, just the weight of those materials compresses it and hardens it and turns it into rock. So there are, as a result of this, there are three main categories of rocks. If we start looking at rocks now. There are what are called igneous rocks. And these are rocks that are essentially formed by heat or fire. That's I-G-N-E-O-S, igneous. Igneous rocks. These are formed by heat or fire. And basically, so, and there are really, there, as I mentioned, there are two paths that this can take. In some cases, this means like if I have a volcanic eruption of, of molten rock at the surface of the earth is called lava. And so if I have an eruption of lava on the surface of the earth, that, when that lava cools, it can solidify and form what we call a volcanic rock. And there are all different kinds of volcanic rocks. Now, I'm going to pass around some examples. And, and you are already passed around passed around one piece already, but I'm going to pass around a bigger one here. Um, this is a piece, and this is a piece of, of obsidian, like this piece that Sally passed around was. This is basically volcanic glass, and the thing is, this is not much different than our glazes. Our glazes are glass. Well, this is naturally occurring glass, basically. If this is this is the same way, you know, we we talk about our glazes. We don't want them to crystallize. We want them to stay glass. Well, this is naturally occurring glass. This the composition of this is not that much different from our glazes. So I'll pass this around. So this, this is not crystalline. This is, this is just glass. Now, on the other hand, I may have a composition that crystallizes and forms little grains of minerals. This is a sample that I collected in Hawaii. This is called basalt. But this is a different kind of... So this is not glass. This is crystalline materials. There's, there are several different minerals in here. But this crystallized a little more... This, this cooled a little more slowly than that. That cooled really fast so that nothing no, no crystals formed. This cooled a little more slowly, so you can't see the individual crystals in it. It still cooled pretty fast, but it cooled. And if you turn it over on the other side, you'll see some little green specks, specks where one mineral, olivine, started to crystallize out of it. But it still cooled pretty quickly, and all the holes are gas bubbles. So this was lava that erupted on the surface of the earth, and it had a lot of trapped gas in it. And before the gas could escape, the rock solidified. Whereas that had very little gas trapped in it, which is why you don't see the bubbles in it. So if you can imagine, you know, rocks coming up to the surface and erupting, there are all kinds of possibilities for different compositions and different characteristics of lava. The Hawaiians even have names for, it's typical of a lot of cultures, you know, where they have a lot of detail of the environment. The Hawaiians have names for two different kinds of lava. One's called a'a, and the other's called pahoehoe. And what they recognize is, is that one of them, pahoehoe, um, flows and moves very quickly, and it's very dangerous. You have to get out of the way, where uh-uh is very slow-moving, and you can stand there and watch it move. And that's because when one of the kinds of lava melts, it's really runny, kind of like our glazes. 
And when the other one melts, it's thick and stiff, and so when it flows, it doesn't move very quickly. You can literally stand there and watch it come toward you, and then you back up a little, and you back up a little bit. Um, and so early on, they realized the distinction that you've got to be careful when Pahoyhoy is erupting, but not so much when Aa is erupting. Uh, and the, the same volcano, as it was dissolving and melting different rocks under the surface of the Earth, it would change composition. So one time it might put out one kind of lava, and another time it might put out another kind of lava. And different volcanoes put out different kinds of lavas. So that's so that was a, and then now if the rock doesn't make it all the way up to the surface of the earth, and so you have this molten rock underneath the earth, it's called magma, M-A-G-M-A. This is molten rock, and it might just come up and sort of rise up into the crust, and then it cools and slows down and stops, and, and it basically solidifies. And it might take literally millions of years to cool down. Well, when it does, then it do, usually they have a chance to form crystals. When it cools so slowly, just the same way, you know, you probably, again, this relates to our glazes, but an important part of firing a glaze is how, not, not how you fire it, but how you cool it. And a lot of glazes, if you slow down the cooling or you add a hold at the end of the firing, you can encourage crystal growth, which you wouldn't normally see if you let it cool down quickly. This is especially true in electric kilns. So if you ever want to try something interesting, if you're firing an electric kiln at cone 6, extend the firing, put a hold on it, or slow down the cooling a lot, you may get something that looks like a completely different glaze. Because you encourage crystal development. The crystals can only form slowly. And so as the, the atoms basically are moving around and collecting together and grouping to, in bunches to form these new crystals. So the atoms have to have time to move. And if you allow them to do that, you form the crystals, you can get a glaze that looks very different than if you cool the same glaze down quickly. So underneath the Earth, where it literally could take millions of years for the rock to cool, you typically get rocks that have very obvious crystals, and the best example is granite. And a lot of these rocks that you see that they, they sell for kitchen counters and bathroom counters, and they have this coarse structure, that's because they were formed deep in the Earth, and they had time to, to separate into all these different crystals. So this has three different materials in it. It has... It has sort of medium gray quartz, and it has the white and large areas of feldspar, and the black is mica. And so this cooled so slowly that all the elements were there. And all these same elements, by the way, are in the obsidian. If that cooled slowly, that would form this. It's almost the same composition, the same total composition. But in that case, it forms, it cooled so quickly, nothing could happen. In this case, that almost the same kind of lava cooled so slowly that it could actually separate. Into, into the separate minerals. That's granite. And there, there are a whole, again, there are lots of other related rocks that have similar compositions with different names. So this is, but that's just, that's a, a, you know, a, a common example. Okay. okay, so those are igneous rocks. Now, yes, sedimentary rocks. And this is where other rocks are worn down by erosion, by weathering. Um, and they, and basically, they, they're, they're basically torn to bits. They're ripped apart. In some cases, they might change chemically a little bit, or they might get broken down. You know, you hear stories about, for instance, how the air pollution is, is, is etching and changing the statues and the facades of buildings and things because it's eating them. So the same, the same process is happening on the rock. Frost is a really big action. If you have a, if a little crack, you have a rock and water gets between it, the water, the water can actually split the rocks. So you can't, especially in parts of the country where you have freezing and thawing, you get much more rapid weathering than in areas where you just have constant, no temperature changes because you're freezing and thawing and expanding and contracting. And basically, the rocks get broken into smaller and smaller parts. Uh, and then, these parts can be carried by streams or wind, blown away by wind or carried into rivers. Eventually, they all end up in the ocean or somewhere. They end up deposited somewhere. 
And if those rocks, if, if the rocks, if let's say you have a, a river that dumps into the ocean and it carries all this sediment and the particles with it and dumps there, over, over millions of years, you can get incredibly thick deposits, miles thick. And at the bottom of that pile, the pressure is so great that the rock actually gets compressed, in, the, the, the loose stuff actually gets compressed into a rock. And I've got some examples of that. This is, this is dolomite. This is a sedimentary rock. And this, was, this is right here from two miles down the road. This stuff was very, this is actually a very valuable rock. Um, this was used by the steel industry as the flux to melt steel. And the stuff from Bolivar right here was shipped direct to Pittsburgh because the steel mills loaded. it. This is a sedimentary rock formed by the skeletons of plants and animals in the ocean. Millions of years and billions and billions and billions of little tiny microscopic one-celled animals and plants, they formed a little shell or a little skeleton around their body, around their one cell, just a little like bubble around them. And when these things set, they died, they'd settle to the bottom of the ocean and build up this stuff. And it took millions of years to accumulate this. And then the heat and pressure, this was kind of fluffy when it settled to the bottom, but buried you know, down under miles maybe of other rock, it got pressed into a, into a solid rock. So this is, this is actually a kind of limestone. I've labeled it dolomite, but it's actually a kind of limestone. So that's the limey skeletons from these plants and animals that settled to the bottom. And this is the same thing you know you hear about the chalk cliffs of Dover. That's exactly the same thing. That's another kind of limestone, only in that case, they were a little fluffier, didn't get compressed quite as much, so the rock is softer than this kind of rock. And that's just a matter of how much it was squashed and compressed after they were buried. Pretty heavy. Pretty heavy. Yeah. And then, okay, so that's one kind of sedimentary rock. Here's another one. This is sandstone. I'll pass this around. I collected this out. This was out around Hancock. And this sandstone was basically just what you imagine. This is sand grains. So this, this, this usually happened deep, deep in, the o- or in the ocean where you had these little, you know, these oceanic things floating around deposit. This is basically a shoreline thing or from streams or rivers where sand grains were deposited or an ancient beach. And sand grains are deposited. And if that condition, if that place stayed a beach for millions of years, then you could build up a lot of sand. And again, under the weight of the overlying sand, after a while it was hardened into a rock. And this, this, this is from a formation. In addition to the labeling the time, different, different layers of rock were given different formation names, they were called from. And they were named because they, that way they were recognizable. And they could say, okay, this kind, I see the same kind of rock over here. So they give it, they, they name it like a formation. It was way of identifying. So this was called the Ariscany sandstone. This is a really famous sandstone. This was formed when the whole eastern half of the United States was under the ocean. And it was basically a beach. And there's this huge, thick deposit of this sandstone. And the interesting thing about this one is it's loaded with fossils, or basically of extinct kind of clamshells. These are brachiopods. So, these are, so this, was, this was from a beach, and it still has the remains, you'll see in it, of the trapped shells. And as a matter of fact, this, this or out around Hancock, out around, um, in that same area, there's a company that markets, that, that mines this stuff, and a lot of the silica that we buy, we use silica as a raw material on the glaciers, comes from this formation. Because, as you notice, it's fairly clean. It's, it's fairly light-colored. Silica by itself is mostly white, so it's fairly clean. It's got a little bit of iron in it, but it's clean enough, and they can just mine they dig it up, crush the rock, and, and run it through a screen and sell it. It's fairly pure silica. And it's mostly, that's, a, that's a, an ancient beach, basically, that was buried. And then the last one I have here, this is shale. And this, to me, this is the most interesting one. This is clay. 
this is so natural clay that was that was deposited and again compressed by lots of layers of clay and it was pressed into a, into a rock. But the interesting thing, this this was right. This is from Martinsburg, West Virginia. There's a, the whole middle of the valley south of Martinsburg. There's this big belt of clay that exists. And the interesting thing, if you smell this, it smells like clay. I mean, so it's still actually. I mean, this is still. I'm going to say. 400 million years old, but it still smells like clay. It's amazing. So, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. So that's just clay that got buried and compressed hard enough to, it's still a very soft rock, but it got compressed enough to, to make it make it solid into a rock. And it's just the weight. Yeah. Yeah, iron. Yeah. Yeah. So those are sedimentary rocks. And lastly, there are metamorphic rocks. And these are the rocks that, have, that are, these are pre-existing rocks that got changed. So it could be igneous rocks that got changed into something else, or sedimentary rocks that got changed into something else, or metamorphic rocks that got changed again into something else. Okay? And um, a good example of that, this is an example of a metamorphic, we're going to talk about this with the local history, but this, this originally started out looking kind of like the shale. Only it got squeezed by heat and pressure. And if you notice also, if you look at it on the end, it got bent. The rocks actually got bent. And, and this, so as part of the meta, from the pressure, so if you press on that enough and you squeeze it and you compress it and squish it around, you get, this is called phyllite. It's a kind of metamorphic rock. But you can see where it actually got, it got bent. So the, the, at this point, the, 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 the rock was actually kind of like toothpaste. And it got squished. Okay. Uh, just a couple of de quick definitions before we, as I should have mentioned long before. Basically, a mineral, the, the word mineral, is basically just a naturally occurring compound, and it's basically an inorganic compound. No, it's, in other words, it's not related to life. It's not a carbon compound. So it's a naturally occurring inorganic compound, which just means it's not, it's not life-related. It, it wasn't living. It's not life-related. And a rock is basically an assemblage of minerals. You can have a rock that's only made up of one mineral, but, but in the general way, you think of a rock as an assemblage or a collection of minerals. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for The Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. So the origin of some of the raw materials we use for, for pottery Clays, and now I'm not talking about clay bodies. When, we, when we're working with clay, we, we use the term clay really loosely. But when we say clay in the studio, we're actually working with what's called a clay body. And that's a preparation. Usually it's a mixture of several kinds of clays, plus a flux, plus some silica, plus maybe some other stuff. I'm talking about natural clays the way they would be found in the ground. So the, the, the clays that are used as materials to make a clay body were all formed from pre-existing rocks and minerals. 
And they're usually, they're either formed on the surface of the ground by weathering, by the, nat- the same weathering process we talked about, the water and the, and the, air, the acid rain, and, and the, minerals, the minerals sort of decompose and they break down and change. Or they could be formed deep in the earth because there are, there are natural solutions and water that's percolating through the ground. Some of it's pretty hot if we're near like a volcano or something. And those hot solutions that are percolating through the ground all the time under our feet are also changing the rocks when they pass through them. So basically, the clays are kind of what's left over from another rock. So the the main main clay mineral, the main clay we use kaolin, is primarily formed from granite. That that, that piece of granite I passed around earlier, the feldspar in the granite is what basically changes to clay, to kaolin clay. I'll pass this around too. Here's a big chunk of feldspar, so you can see a bigger piece of what the feldspar. This is a, it happens to be pink instead of gray, and it's a, little, it's a different kind. There's a little bit of another mineral here, mica. You'll see the shiny stuff. Now, mica is another mineral. If mica is broken down, mica changes to another clay mineral called illite. So almost all of the clay minerals, the clays that we find, are composed of these two clay minerals, kaolinite and illite, and they're formed from this stuff. And what happens is, these, these, the feldspars contain elements like, like what we think of as flux elements, like sodium and potassium. And if you can dissolve those out of the rock over a long period of time, what you'll end up with is, what you're left with is clay. So if I take that stuff and remove the fluxes from it, I end up with clay. So the fel- both of those minerals there would turn, would turn into clay. The feldspar would turn into kaolinite. And the, and the micro turn into delight, which is another kind of clay. Volcanic ash, now here we talked about before. Volcan- we actually, you've probably seen this, we use volcanic ash as a glaze ingredient. It's called pumice, it's another name for the same thing. That's just plain volcanic ash. You go collect it, like from Mount St. Helens, and you can use that as a glaze ingredient. Well, volcanic ash is essentially identical to obsidian. It just happens to be in a, in a naturally occurring fine dust form rather than in big chunks. So this is what happens when, instead of the volcano just oozing out and kind of burping out this liquid, you know, this liquid lava, it explodes and blasts it all over. And when it blasts, it blasts it into tiny little bits up into the air to cool and rain down as ash. Basically the same composition as that. So I could grind up that obsidian, which I never would sell, but I could, I could, I could grind it up and use that as, my, as a grazing ingredient instead of pumice, because it's essentially the same composition. Okay. Now, the, the clays are, their clays can be found in sort of two different general locations. They can either be found more or less where they were formed, or they might be transported and moved somewhere else and then redeposited. And those are the two kind of clay, two categories when we talk about natural clays, primary and secondary. Primary clays are clays that are pretty much found in the same place where they were formed. So, and this has, which means, so for example, um, you've all heard of Grolic, probably Grolic Kaolin, which is the British Kaolin. Grolic Kaolin formed underground from a big chunk of granite, that was a granite-like rock that was there millions of years ago. And solutions passing through the ground dissolved away all the fluxes and turned this big mass of granite into a lot of clay. So the, the, the neat thing about this is, so it didn't get moved around. If the granite had a very limited number of minerals in it, 
after it was changed, it didn't pick up a lot of impurities. This is why growling kale and primary clays in general are considered fairly pure, because they don't get moved around, they don't get contaminated. So this is why grawling kaolin is, is, gives you this nice white clay for porcelain and things, because it, it didn't get moved around or transported or contaminated. It's just what was left from the granite. Now, in the granite, remember, I had three different minerals. I had quartz, feldspar, and mica. Well, the mica turned into a kind of into mineral, into clay. The feldspar turned into clay, and all I had left was quartz. Well, there is a lot of quartz. Any kind of naturally occurring clay you find, there's always a lot of quartz in it, because nothing happens to the quartz. Quartz is basically indestructible. It just sits there and looks at you. So while the feldspar is changing into clay, the quartz is just sitting there and you know, waiting its time. And so you dig up the clay, and now you've got what we call clay, but it also has a lot of quartz in it. So there's a case where that could turn right into a nice white-looking clay. And that's what happened with Grawl. And that's what also happened in Georgia. There's a lot of kaolin in Georgia. The same thing happened. There were granite-like rocks down there that changed into grit. So those are primary clays. Now, if the, if the clay, if, if this lump of clay either formed at the surface or was formed at depth and then got brought up to the surface by erosion and, and the rocks rose in the crust and then, it was, and then it got eroded and carried away by streams and rivers and then deposited somewhere else, those are secondary clays. So the clays got transported by, let's say, the mostly water streams, and so they had a chance to pick up a lot of contamination, dead frogs, leaves, sticks, pollen, you name it. Other, other minerals in the stream bed, so, they, so they're not, they're, as, a, as a whole class, they're not as pure as primary clays. And these include, so these include things like ball clay, stoneware clays, fire clay, earthenware. These are all naturally occurring kinds of secondary clays, and they all tend to be, to be somewhat impure. So the secondary clays, depending on the rock that they started from and depending on what happened to them and depending on how they were transported, can either be really, really dirty and impure or not so bad. And this is what, and the, and the other thing that happens when they're transported is the clay particles can get ground up. If you can imagine clay particles being transported by a stream and there are rocks and boulders and everything there, the rubbing together of the rocks and the sand particles grinds up the clay because the clay is fairly soft mineral. It's not particularly hard. So it gets ground up. So, so a lot of, of secondary clays also tend to be finer, finer particle size, which means, for us, they're more plastic. Ball clay is probably the most plastic clay, kind of naturally clay that you can get. You can't make things out of ball clay. It's so plastic that it shrinks a lot, it holds a lot of water, but it's an ingredient in most clay bodies. You put it in a clay body to make, if you have clays that aren't plastic, you'd add some ball clay to make them more plastic. And Volta is a good example of, of being beaten to death by the transportation process because it gets, it gets ground up so much. And we'll, get, we'll talk a little bit more about those. So, but I say, so the clay properties really depend on specific kind of clays. What was the rock that it came from? What were the weathering processes? What actually changed it into a clay? And how was it transported? Was it transported by wind? Was it transported by water? How far did it get moved? Does it, was it moved just a short way? For instance, EPK, Edgar Plastic Kaolin, this is actually a secondary kaolin in Florida. Well, it originally came from somewhere around Georgia, roughly. So it's not that contaminated. It's not as pure as growling because it is a secondary clay. It got moved, but it's a little finer and a little more plastic than growling because it got moved. And it's a little more contaminated, but still not too bad. Um, so. Anyway, so, yeah, so EPK is the secondary one. Ball clay is, is very fine. And common red earthenware, 
like the stuff you think when you like you find red clay in your garden, or you find clay that's maybe gray or brown, but when you fire it, it turns red, has a lot of iron in it. That's that was probably formed from a rock that had a lot of iron to begin with, and it was also transported, so it ends up having a lot of fluxes in it, a lot of impurities, which is why it melts at a low temperature. That's why it is earthenware. Not because it has different clay minerals in it, but because it has all this other stuff in it that act as fluxes and make it melt at a low temperature. And here's a good example of how of sort of the weathering process. This is a kind of metamorphic rock that I collected down around Washington, D.C. And I had to dig. This is probably pretty fresh rock. And this rock is probably, you know, I'm going to say, yeah, 350 million years old, roughly. Um, but I, I, I was able to find other locations that had been exposed at a, for a long time. This is the same rock. And this is the same rock that's well on its way to, to changing into clay. So this was protected. This was buried deep inside of the rock. This was exposed. And you, you, you feel the difference. This one feels a little lighter weight. And actually, I had to soak this in, in um, shellac about 10 times because it would, I, could just, I could almost just crumble it in my hand. Well, I wanted to be able to use it as a display piece. So it feels, if it feels a little soapy, that's because it's covered with, it's impregnated with shellac. But this is the same rock. And if you notice, this is starting to look like red clay. Well, it is. Basically, this, is, this, is, this has a lot of red clay in it and was formed from this rock. And this is just, this was in one location, and I was able to find a spot where high up where the rock had been exposed for ages, it was turning into this. And it was just falling apart. This is the fresh rock. Still really hard. Same rock. So that's well on its way to becoming red earthenware clay, natural red earthenware. You feel like the other one's heavier too? Yeah. Okay, so just so some so some of the other materials we use, just I just mentioned about the clays. Well we use silica as a glaze ingredient, right? Well here's a chunk of here's a chunk of, of, of quartz. I collected this up on, on Gambrel State Park. There's a ton of this stuff there up on there on the mountain. Uh, and this is just a massive chunk of quartz. Now the quartz that we use for our when we use quartz or silica, quartz is the mineral name for silica. And when we use silica as a glaze ingredient, most of it actually is probably coming from the sandstone, because that's a lot easier to crush than from stuff like this. But you could crush this stuff from There are boulders that the size of an automobile up there on the mountain, on the size of Campbell State Park. So uh, the mineral quartz was originally igneous. It was originally formed in igneous rocks. But it, when we mine it and we used it for pottery, most of it is probably coming from sedimentary sandstone. There's a sandstone out there near Berkeley Springs, which it's kind of like a sediment. The sandstone is so soft that it, the sandstone is literally falling apart back into sand. It's really cool. You stand at the edge of this cliff, and the sandstone is just, it, there's a huge sand pile at the bottom. And just the, the erosion and the weathering is changing it back into sand. So it wasn't that hard to cement, hard, you know, compactly cemented in the first place. And so the company just goes and scoops this stuff up. They don't even have to crush it practically. They just sit there and, you know, if they wait long enough, it just turns back into sand. Flint, and you've probably seen this as a glaze ingredient. Flint is just, is a di I didn't bring any examples in here, but it's a, it's a different form of silica, and it's mostly British. It's mostly European, because a lot in, in Europe, they didn't have either the sand beaches like this here, or they didn't have the chunks of quartz like I'm passing around. What they had was little chunks of silica that occurred like in the chalk cliffs of Dover was found in the limestone. So they gathered that up and used it. And that, that form of, of quartz is called flint. So that's why if you see a recipe that calls for flint, it's still silica, or it's still the mineral quartz, but that's kind of the European or the British name. 
So feldspar, feldspar, and that's another really common glaze ingredient, right? We have soda feldspars and potash feldspars, glaze ingredients. Um, those are basically igneous minerals again. But, and they, like that, that piece of granite I passed around, you might say, well, how do you separate out the quartz and the, and the mica? Well, you don't, but under certain conditions, you get much more concentrated areas of feldspar like this, and you get huge masses of pretty pure feldspars that they can dig up and mine and, and use that. So feldspar was another one, but it would come from a rock like a granite. And there would be areas, though, under the ground where you'd have a mine where you'd have huge masses of giant, of not, not much else but feldspar, and so they could dig that up and end up with a pretty pure product. Um, limestone and dolomite, well, there's, 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 we use both of those, we use both of those as glazers. Limestone is whiting. That's the, that's the name that we call it when we use it as a glazing. Well, whiting is limestone. And we use dolomite. Dolomite is that, exactly that. It's another kind of limestone that contains magnesium. And that's that other rock I passed around. So this is just sedimentary rocks. And those are fairly soft. So you, you can just dig them up, quarry, dig them up, and crush them and grind them. And you've got the, the materials that we, that we use, limestone and dolomite. And there, there's a lot of limestone. You may, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you go down near Costco in Frederick, there's a huge limestone quarry right there in Frederick. Because this, when we get to it, we'll talk about it, but there are, there are bands of limestone formation that are exposed all up and down this part of the country. And they're separated by other kinds of rocks. So these sort of long, streaky areas of limestone, and the, one, the, the quarry in Frederick is sitting on one of those. The quarry right down the road here, a couple miles down the road, is sitting on dolomite. And it's another one of these long, sort of stretched out kind of zones of limestone. But there are a lot of them only in this part of the country. Volcanic ash, we already talked about. We use pumice, volcanic ash, we talked about that already. That's, that's a glaze ingredient. I mean, you could, like, I know some people, for instance, that were making glazes from the ash from Mount St. Helens. When that erupted, you had kind of an unlimited supply of glaze ingredient. So you go shovel it off your car and put it inside and glaze out of it. What's really interesting, they're finding out now, is that some of the ancient um, ash deposits, like Vesuvius, the Romans used the ash to make their concrete. And they're finding now that the, the concrete, they actually made concrete. The, the concrete that the Romans made is incredibly durable. And part of the reason why it was durable was because of the particular kind of ash they used from Mount Vesuvius to include in their concrete. And they're studying, I worked on concrete for a while also when I was in industry. And they're studying the properties of the Roman concrete because there's something really unique about the volcanic ash that they used to make it. And it made incredibly durable, incredibly durable concrete. I mean, there's still freestanding concrete arches made in the Romans around the turn, you know, two millennia ago. Um, two of the other ingredients that we use, talc and wollastonite, those are both glaze ingredients. Those are mostly metamorphic rocks. Talc is a magnesium silicate. Wollastonite is a calcium silicate. You may remember those, those in glaze ingredients. Talc and wollastonite, those are both, those, they mine those from metamorphic rocks. So again, you might find a big, there's a big deposit I used to live near, work up in northern New York State, a huge talc deposit. And this was a big area where this, the, all the rock was pretty pure, it was mostly just talc, and they could just dig it up and get it. Two, two other materials that we have, spodumene and petalite, recognize those names for glazing reasons, those are found in igneous rocks. So again, there might be, it, so it, it isn't just like one little grain here and one little grain there, but if there'd be certain cases where the geological processes would tend to concentrate those minerals, so they'd find a, a deposit, a local deposit of a lot of spodumene or a lot of petalite, enough to make it worthwhile to dig it up, and they wouldn't have to do too much purification or separation to end up with the pure mineral. 
the borate minerals like Gersley borate and, some, and soda ash, these other things, those are mostly lake deposits. Those are, those are mostly um, materials that were deposited in, in lakes, ancient lake deposits, where the water was carried down from the higher mountains and it eroded and carried these minerals down and then deposited in these bits. You heard also like related to that, like the salt flats, the Bonneville salt flats. Same idea. These are, these are ancient deposits that were formed in ancient lakes where the minerals were carried down from the surrounding mountains by streams and rivers and deposited in these basins and left behind these thick deposits of these minerals. And finally, the things that we use as colorants, like iron, copper, nickel, those, those sort of special materials, these are kind of really very special ore deposits that could be formed by a lot of different processes. But like when you find a copper ore, like like when we, we use copper, there are very specific, there are different kinds, there are very specific processes that could cause copper to be concentrated in one part of the earth enough to make it worthwhile digging up. There's probably copper, for example, everywhere. You can probably go in the backyard and there's a trace of copper in the soil here, but not enough to make it worthwhile to gather. But under certain geological conditions, the elements get concentrated and you find these pockets or these concentrations of elements that then you can dig up. A lot of the other materials that we use for glazes, we're not using them right out of the ground. I mean, like lime winding and all these things, and feldspar, they're pretty much out of the ground. But things like lithium carbonate and magnesium carbonate, these are chemically processed. So a lot of these things are, have been chemically processed to purify from the naturally occurring materials. So I'll just read off something like lithium carbonate, that doesn't occur in any significant quantities. That's a chemical product made from a lithium mineral. So they might mine spodumene, and then in a chemical factory, they turn that into lithium carbonate, which we would buy. Or barium carbonate. Yeah, there is barium carbonate that occurs as a natural mineral, but not enough that you can just dig it up a lot. So instead, again, that's sort of a chemical product. Um, copper carbonate, a common colorant. You're not buying copper carbonate just dug out of the ground. They dig up the copper. They process it and make copper carbonate out of it, and then we buy that. So it's, it's been through some processing. It's not, it's not directly out of the ground. Let's, let's talk briefly about local geological history, because this is, a lot happened around here. Um, and basically, all we're going to talk about is the results of continents colliding and separating. That's what they, we, we're going to, there are a whole series, we're going to talk about it, but there are a series of continents that collided and split apart, and collided and split apart, and collided and split apart, and they're still doing it. So, um, about 1.1 billion years ago, um, there was an ancient continent called Rodinia, or O-D-I-N-I-A, which was forming from previously existing continents. So the one thing to remember here is that when we talk about the continents, I'm not just talking about the part we see above the ground, you know, above the sea right now. I'm talking about the whole plate. But the part that we see, the shape of the continents we see now has changed because Continents have moved together, and then it's like you take two puzzle pieces and you bring them together, and then you tear them apart along a different line. So now you've got new pieces. You've got maybe two pieces up here and two pieces here. You combine them again, and then it tears apart again in a different way. So there are parts of them that stay intact, like the, cent the centers of the continents tend to be the same, which makes sense, tend to stay intact. But they have pieces added on to the edges or torn away from the edges as they collide and move the part. So around 1.1 billion years ago, ancient continents that already existed collided to form a new continent called Rodinia. And when this happened, there were ancient mountains that formed because the continents slammed together in slow motion and, and formed these mountains. And at the time, as a result of that, there was a metamorphic rock formed from old granite. 
This is it. This is a 1.1 billion year old rock. And I found it right over here a couple of miles away. There's, an, there's a really unusual exposure. This is called the, this is called the Middletown Nice. It's the basement rock under this whole part of Maryland. It's the oldest rock under this whole part of Maryland. This was from this continent that was formed about 1.1 billion years ago. This may be the oldest rock you ever hold in your hand. And so there was, there was when, when the two continents, when the continents slammed together to form this new continent, Rodinia, the, the older rocks were, con, were converted, the older granite was converted into this metamorphic rock called Nice, G-N-I-S-S. And the only, I knew it was here, but I couldn't, you couldn't get at it because it was buried underground. And then I found out they were doing a road, it was really cool, they were doing a road cut over here on 180, and they were, they were widening the road, and they dug into the hillside. And when they dug into the hillside, they exposed this rock. And then about 700 million years ago, we're still talking back in this period here, 700 million years before then, the, the, the continent started to tear itself apart. And the continent, it was called rifting. The continent, you've probably heard the term before, you hear about rift valleys. A rift valley is what forms when a continent is tearing itself apart and the land kind of slumps down because you're literally creating cracks in the continent. So around 700 million years ago, this ancient continent started to tear itself apart. And when it did, volcanoes were formed and a whole portion of the land was flooded with volcanic lava. And I didn't bring it along with me, but you can find evidence of that around here, just down the road. Um, only it's been changed into a new kind of rock because of later processes, but it's an ancient lava so that's about 600 million years old. Matter of fact, I made a glaze out of it. It's really cool. It makes a nice glaze. Um, so then, then when, this, when this continent was tearing itself apart, it started to form a new ocean because something, you know, water's around the continent. So when, this, when Rubinia started to rip itself apart and water came in, New, new sediments are being deposited, new things are happening underwater, but it started to actually open up and form a new ocean called the Iapetus, Iapetus Ocean, which has long since gone. Iapetus Ocean. Iapetus Ocean. And uh, it, formed, it started to form a narrow sea, kind of like today, the Red, the Red Sea is, a, is, a, is a, a, the, the continent, the Red Sea is actually an expanding ocean. It's kind of, a Red Sea is another example of an ocean that's happening because of, of continent spreads. So when this first formed, it formed something that kind of looks sort of like the Red Sea, this long, narrow ocean between these two separating pieces of continent. And a lot of, in that ocean, a lot of sedimentary rocks were deposited. Because, you know, if you imagine you've got mountains, and then they're being pulled apart. Well, all the, all the streams and the rivers and everything are carrying all the sand and everything and depositing it in the ocean. Between, so the, the, the continents are separating, the ocean's getting wider, and all this stuff, rocks and minerals, are being deposited in the basin between the oceans. And um, that this thing here that I brought along, that's when this was deposited originally. This was deposited as sort of a shale-like material in the oceans um, when, the, when, the, when the two continents were separated. That's when this was deposited. And a lot of the other rocks around here, the rocks up here on Maryland Heights, that's when they were deposited. When these two earlier continents, they were separate, they were deposited in this ocean as these continents separated. And all these limestones around here, same thing, were deposited roughly around the same time. Um, then around, somewhere around the mid-Paleozoic, now we're getting up into this period, the ocean started closing again. The continents were shifting around, and the ocean that had opened up now started to slam closed again. And around the end of this, around 
let's see, around, yeah, around, around the end of the Paleozoic, so before the beginning of that, um, North America, now it's, it started, North America basically collided, it started, it started closing again, and you had other continents that collided together. So you started, North America basically collided with Africa and South America, and this is when these, the, basically the, the, all the mountains up the east in the United States were formed, the ones that exist today, that remain today, when, when, when the continents Africa and South America slammed into North America. And when they did, all the rocks around here got crumpled and bent and folded. And that's when this folding happened. So this was deposited in the ocean. And then later, when the continents slammed together, as they were opening up, this stuff was deposited. And then when they came back together and slammed together, this stuff was bent and folded. And what's really cool around here is that, let me erase this, the mountains that we see around here, um, like Catoctin Mountain and South Mountain and um, um, what's the other one here? The Blue, actually the mountain called Blue Ridge. These are the remain. These are the remains of the crumpling that was done during this period when the, when the continents collided. And what actually happened here? It's, it started off with like just layers of sediment. When the continents collided, they actually made a huge fold like this in the layers of rock. They were bent and squished together. And this distance we're talking about here is like 10 miles. The continents, was, they were pushed for miles and squashed together. And then later on, it was eroded. It was wet, worn down. And you end up with something that looks kind of like that. This is Catoctin Mountain, and that's South Mountain and Blue Ridge. So these are the, these are the, the edges of this big fold that uh, what was left of this big fold that was crushed in when these things, when the continents collided, about 250 million years ago. So um, after they collided, then they they separated again. So they had crushed together, and then that's when the Atlantic Ocean formed. So after Africa and South America, and they all collided together to produce the mountains along the eastern coast, and when they slammed together, they pushed up the mountains. And then they and then they drifted apart again um, after about 250 million years, and that's when that's when the present ocean opened. They separated again, and water came back in. And of course, now we give it a different name, but it's now the Atlantic Ocean. And ever since then, um, and the Atlantic Ocean is still widening. I mentioned earlier at the beginning, is still growing wider. Pacific Ocean, excuse me, is closing. And basically, everything that's happened since that time has basically just been erosion. All the pre-existing mountains are being worn down, sediments are being deposited in the ocean. The Atlantic Ocean is expanding because you may have heard of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. There's a line down the middle of the Atlantic mountain chain underneath the ocean that runs all the way from Iceland all the way almost to Antarctica. And it's a line where new, new lava, new molten rock is coming up from the mantle and, and spreading and pushing the continents apart. So the, it's, it's spreading the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean the, the, is, is closing in. And this is why I have earthquakes in California, because the Pacific Ocean is crumpling into the coast of California. So, but, it, but basically, so what we see around here, all these ridges are the remains of this crumpling that occurred when the continents um, collided. So anyway, to summarize, so you had, 
This so all this stuff right here, the ancient continents that collided to form Rodinia, then they tore apart to form the Iapetus Ocean, then they collided and began to form this new continent, which was called Pangaea, and then they opened again and formed the Atlantic Ocean. And so what we see, so the, the, the really thing about here is you can find all the rocks from all these different stages. Like I said, I was able to find that nice, that rock from the really 1.1 billion years ago. You can find this stuff, which was deposited in the ocean and then crumpled and bent when the continents collided and formed the mountains. And then you can, and they were up. And at the same time, Frederick, the whole Frederick Valley, there's a line of geological faults along, just along this side of Catoctin Mountain. And that's another rift valley. Because when the, when, when the Atlantic Ocean started opening, the continent started to tear itself apart. And so Frederick is basically a rift valley, and there are several of them along here, where the, where the land slumped down. There's a great, another great rock I didn't bring along here, but it's where, when the, rock, when, the, when the mountains started to separate, there were limestone cliffs, and the limestone was broken off and carried down in chunks and got cemented together by iron minerals. And it looks like it's called a, a conglomerate or a breccia. And you've got chunks of one rock in another rock. And that formed when the, when the rift valley opened. Really cool. And so you have these big chunks of limestone that literally tumbled down the face and then would settle in and were cemented together to form another rock. I've seen that down near Leesburg, too. There's a, a farm field down near Leesburg where they had a bike race. Big boulders of that can come. Yeah, and, and it's around here. As a matter of fact, it was actually quarried. It's used, I think, in a Capitol building. It was actually quarried at one time. It's called the Calico Marble. It's not marble at all, but it was called the calico marble. And it's beautiful because it has like grayish white chunks, angular chunks, in a pinkish red background. Um, and it was mine. And I think there's there's some build there's some columns and I think the Capitol building or the State Building or something that were quarried and, and used for it. What about the Appalachian Mountains and then the that's, that, that, that's, the that's all the same time from the collision, up and down. And if you notice, that's why, again, if you look at the map, all these mountains in the eastern part of the United States parallel the coastline. Yeah. Now, that wasn't originally the coastline. Uh, the coastline, a long time ago, was probably only about a little bit east of Frederick, what was originally the coast. Uh, but yeah, that's why they're all, they basically, because that's where the continent slammed in. Okay, so that brings us up to date. And that's about it. <laughs> Any questions? Okay, well, thank you all for coming. Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.